Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Well, I am excited today to be able to talk about Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And with that, I would like to set forth a theme. I think this is a great theme because we're going to talk about the word disciple. And some of you know that the word disciple comes from the Latin disciplus, which means a pupil or a learner. A learner, But the way that we use the word disciple, we can also talk about discipline. Uh, that word discipline comes from that same root, to be disciplined people. And one of my favorite things about Elder Bednar as I've come to learn about him is his disciplined life. In fact, I had the chance to be in a meeting with Elder Bednar not long ago. And I asked him, as I stood next to him, I said, Elder Bednar, what time did you wake up today? And he said, 4.30, 4.30 a.m. I said, is that sleeping in? And he said, kind of. Usually it's around 3 or 3.30. But he wakes up early and exercises and studies and whatever else he does. But, but that's been consistent for years. This is a man who gets a, a lot of things done. Years ago, I was in the home of my in-laws over Christmas, and I always like to read a book over the Christmas holidays, and I found this book on my father-in-law's shelf called The Disciplined Life, The Mark of Christian Maturity. The book was actually published in 1962, but even recently I was so intrigued with it that I ordered it on Amazon, and you can still get it. It's a fascinating read. But I'm just going to read you a quote or two from that book. Here we go, quoting, Discipline is what moderns need the most and want the least. Too often, young people who leave home, students who quit school, husbands and wives who seek divorce, church members who neglect services, employees who walk out on their jobs, are simply trying to escape discipline. The true motive may often be camouflaged by a hundred excuses, but behind the flimsy front is the hardcore aversion to restraint and control. And then continuing, quote, The world is full of naturally brilliant people who never rise above mediocrity because they will not make the sacrifice which superiority requires. The edge possessed by the disciplined over the undisciplined shows up in many little things. The disciplined person picks up their clothes. The undisciplined lets them lie. One washes the bathtub after himself. The other leaves the high water mark for someone else to scrub. One plans his work and works his plan. The other works haphazardly. Continuing, one is habitually prompt in his appointments. The other is notoriously tardy. Some people are always on time to church, while others never are. Observers of many years of experience will support the claim that the difference cannot be explained in the greater distance to travel or the larger families to hustle. The difference is habit, and habit is character. Don't you love this? Now, that was the end of that quote, but it really had an impact on me as I read that. And then I wrote for myself just this a few years ago. Without discipline, goals will not be attained and potential will be squandered. Without discipline, missionary service will be ineffective and will cost others in the long run. 
Without discipline, jobs and careers will be inconsistent and unfulfilling. Without discipline, our own health can be jeopardized. Without discipline, marriage and family life will be difficult and frustrating. Without discipline, the spiritual life will be non-existent. Without discipline, bad habits and addictions will take root and blossom. And without discipline, we will fail. Now this reminds me of Admiral William McRaven, and so many of you have heard this before, but it's just worth repeating. The Admiral speaks at the University of Texas commencement exercises and tells the the student body that what they need to do to be great in their lives is to wake up every morning and make their beds. Yeah, make their beds. And then he wrote this, Making my bed correctly was not going to be an opportunity for praise. It was expected of me. He's talking about his military service. It was my first task of the day, and doing it right was important. It demonstrated my discipline. It showed my attention to detail, and at the end of the day, it would be a reminder that I had done something well, something to be proud of, to be proud of, no matter how small the task. Now, getting back to Elder Bednar for a minute, living an incredibly disciplined life, waking up every morning early, studying the gospel, exercising, and the question for all of us is, how can we follow Elder Bednar's example to be a more disciplined person? Now, I think his wife, Susan, gave maybe the greatest tribute to Elder Bednar. She said this, People who know him well would say that he's tough but tender. He's competent and compassionate. He's driven yet discerning. He's faithful and fearless. He has a great capacity to lead and the wisdom to follow. Oh, I love that. Elder Bednar was born in San Leandro, California on June the 15th, 1952 to Anthony George and Lavina Whitney Bednar. Now, Elder Bednar's mother comes from faithful Latter-day Saint heritage. In fact, her her pioneer, uh, his pioneer ancestors helped settle parts of southern Utah, Nevada, part of the famous Muddy Mission. Elder Bednar's father, on the other hand, was not a member of the church as Elder Bednar grew up. He grew up in the home of a part member family with mom being active and faithful and dad not being a member. Yet his dad was a great, wonderful person, a religious person, someone who once in their life was actually contemplating being a Catholic priest. Elder Bednar is the youngest of three children. As a youth, he participated in scouting played quarterback on his high school football team. He was also an all-state golfer. Uh, I think it's interesting to note that Elder Bednar did walk on at BYU and tried his hand at football there. But there was a, another man who played quarterback at the time that some of you may know named Gifford Nielsen, which I would say, okay, that would be some pretty, pretty stiff competition. Now, Elder Bednar said this in an interview years ago. He said that, I honestly believe that I was born not to teach my father, but to assist him in learning about the restored gospel. His father was an honest, straightforward man. By the way, Helter Bednar's father, he was that man that many of us know, so to speak, meaning the non-member of the church who was always there at church. Elder Bednar said he he attended church with us, he coached our softball team, he took our scouts on trips, In fact, when Elder Bednar decided to go on a mission, his dad fully supported him. 
But one of the things his dad would say when young Elder Bednar would often ask his dad, Dad, when are you going to join the church? His father would always say, I'll join this church when I know it's the right thing to do. Or in other words, I'm not going to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints just because you want me to. All right? I'll, I'll do it if it's the right thing. Edna, Elder Bednar's relationship with his dad taught him that there are many good people in the world who aren't members of the church. His father was a tool and die maker, was a man of order and priority, which I feel that Elder Bednar has inherited those traits from his dad. In fact, listen to this. There was an individual space on the wall of the family garage for every tool his father owned with the shape of the tool drawn, you know, the outline of the tool drawn on the wall where that tool was to hang. Now, although he was almost 60 years old when his youngest son was a teenager, Elder Bednar's father was the receiver for young David Bednar, a high school quarterback running pass patterns in the family backyard to help his son prepare for games. Oh, don't you love that image of father and son? And just as Elder Bednar's father was in great physical shape in his 60s, Elder Bednar is in great physical shape in his 70s now. In fact, his son Jeff told me years ago that he said, I was, it was probably just a couple of years ago, and literally a couple of years ago from, from right now, when, El, when Jeff said that I actually could beat my father in a foot race. Elder Bednar was beating his sons in foot races in his 60s. So this is a man who's, once again, back to the point of incredibly disciplined. In a talk that Elder Bednar gave in the April Conference of 2012, entitled The Powers of Heaven, he said this. He said, I was reared in the home, in a home with a faithful mother and a wonderful father. My mom was a descendant of pioneers who sacrificed everything for the church and kingdom of God. My dad was not a member of our church and, as a young man, had desired to become a Catholic priest, as I mentioned a minute ago. Back to Elder Bednar, ultimately he elected not to attend theological seminary and instead pursued a career as a tool and die maker. For much of his married life, my father attended meetings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with our family. In fact, many of the people in our ward had no idea that my dad was not a member of the church. He played on and coached our ward softball team. He helped with scout activities and supported my mother in her various callings and responsibilities. But I want to tell you about one of the great lessons I learned from my father about priesthood authority and priesthood power. As a boy, I asked my dad many times each week when he was going to be baptized. He responded lovingly but firmly each time I pestered him. David, I'm not going to join the church for your mother, for you, or for anyone else. I will join the church when I know it's the right thing to do. I believe I was in my early teenage years when the following conversation occurred with my father. We had just returned home from attending our Sunday meetings together, and I asked my dad when he was going to be baptized. He smiled and said, You're the one always asking me about being baptized. But today I have a question for you. And Elder Bednar said, I quickly and excitedly concluded that we were now making progress. My dad continued, David, your church teaches that the priest who was taken from the earth anciently has been restored by heavenly messengers to the prophet Joseph Smith, right? I replied that his statement was correct. And then he said, here's my question. Each week in priesthood meeting, I listened to the bishop and the other priesthood leaders remind, beg, and plead with the men to do their home teaching and to perform their priesthood duties. If your church truly has the restored priesthood of God, 
Why are so many of the men in your church no different about doing their religious duty than the men in my church? My young mind immediately went completely blank. I had no adequate answer for my dad. Now, Elder Bednar said this, I believe my father was wrong to judge the validity of our church's claim to divine authority by the shortcomings of the men with whom he associated with in our ward. But embedded in his question to me was the correct assumption that men who bear God's holy priesthood should be different from other men. Men who hold the priesthood are not inherently better than other men, but they should act differently. Men who hold the priesthood should not only receive priesthood authority, but also become worthy and faithful conduits of God's power. And then Elder Bednar quoted the verse in Doctrine and Covenants section 38, Be clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Now here's Elder Bednar, I've never forgotten the lesson about priesthood authority and power I learned from my father, a good man, not of our faith, who expected more from men who claimed to bear God's priesthood. That Sunday afternoon, conversation with my dad many years ago produced in me a desire to be a good boy. I did not want to be a poor example and a stumbling block to my father's progress and learning about the restored gospel. I simply wanted to be good. Elder Bednar said, I wanted to be a good boy. The Lord needs all of us as bearers of his holy authority to be honorable, virtuous, good boys at all times and in all places. Now, here's Elder Bednar. I love this. He said, you may be interested to know that a number of years later, my father was baptized. And at the appropriate time, I had the opportunity to confer upon him the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods. One of the great experiences of my life was observing my dad receive the authority and ultimately the power of the priesthood. Now, I love that story uh, that, Elder, that Elder Bednar shared. Uh, wow, so powerful. What a great father and son relationship. Uh, what a great, great experience and things Elder Bednar learned that I think molded and shaped his life and wanting to be good, wanting to be that good example for his father, which I know that he was. Now, we don't know much about Elder Bednar's life uh, in the coming years other than this. First, he does go to BYU that freshman year like so many uh, do. And then he uh, serves a mission. He's called on a mission to Germany and serves in the mission field with great faithfulness. And now we'll tell the story of the 20-mark note because it's probably one of the only things we really know about his mission, but it's so powerful and so significant. And that story is rooted in this question. Elder Bednar said that while he was the president of BYU-Idaho, that perhaps the most commonly asked question of him was Elder Bednar, how do I know when it's the Holy Ghost giving me prompting or if it's just me? Oh boy, a question every single one of us has answered, or sorry, has asked ourselves hundreds and hundreds of times, right? Now here's Elder Bednar's answer to that question. He said, stop worrying about it. If you're living the commandments, keeping your covenants, then the Holy Ghost will be there to direct you as long as you're moving forward. I would say, you know, adding that to that, just simply, yeah, when we're, when we're inspired to do something good, then we can rest assured that the Holy Ghost is leading us and guiding us. The account of the 20-mark note that I have is, was actually told by Elder Packer. He tells of being in Munich, Germany, 
and being on looking for uh, planes that or transportation anyway that would be leaving Munich for Berlin. And he talks about how these elders took them to the mission home. My wife rummaged through the kitchen, found some canned soup, made us a quick supper. And then the elders took us to the train station, bought our tickets, and saw us aboard the train, which would take us from about midnight till 10 a.m. the next morning to arrive in Berlin. And as the train was pulling out, one young elder said, Do you have any German money? I shook my head no. And he said, You better have some. And running alongside, pulled from his pocket a 20-mark note and handed that to me. At that time, the Iron Curtain was very iron. The train stopped at Hof on the border between the West German and East German, well, the West German, West Germany and East Germany, and they changed crews. All of the West German German crew members got off the train, and the East German communist crew got on the train. Then it set out across East Germany towards Berlin. They had just begun to issue five-year passports. I had a new passport, a five-year passport. We went to have my wife's passport renewed. They sent it back saying that the three-year passports were honored as a five-year passport and that she still had more than two years left on her passport. All right, about two o'clock in the morning, a conductor, a military-type soldier, came and asked for our tickets. And then, noting that we were not German, he asked for our passports. I always hate to give up my passport. I do not like to give up my passport, especially in unfriendly places, but he took them. I almost never dislike anybody, but I made an exception for him. He was a surly, burly, ugly man. This is Elder Packer saying this. We spoke no German in the car, the compartment. There were six of us, my wife and a German, sitting to the side of her, and then almost knee to knee in a bench facing us were three other Germans. We all had been conversing a little. When he came in, all was silent. The conversation took place, and I knew what he was saying. He was denying her passport. And Elder Packer is using these words uh, in German that I probably can't pronounce and probably shouldn't. He went away and came back two or three times, finally not knowing what to do. I had a bit of of inspiration, Elder Packer said, and produced that 20-mark note. He looked at it, took the note, and handed us our passports. The next morning, we arrived in Berlin. A member of the church who was the head of the Central Intelligence Agency for the the United States in Berlin met us at the train. I rather lightly told him of our experience. He was very sober then, and very suddenly I said, what's the matter? He said, I don't know how to explain your getting here. East Germany is right now, East Germany right now is one country in the world that refuses to honor the three-year passport. To them, your wife's passport was not valid. I said, well, what could they have done? He said, well, they would have put you off the train. I said, they wouldn't have put us off the train, would they? He said, not us, her. Basically, they would have put your wife off the train. I could see myself having someone to try to put my wife off the train at 2 o'clock in the morning somewhere in East Germany. I'm not sure I would have known what to do. I'm glad that that experience passed. I did not learn until afterwards how dangerous it was and what circumstances were, particularly for my wife. I care a good deal more about her than I do for me. That intelligence officer convinced us that we had been in very serious danger. Those whose passports they would not accept were arrested and detained. All of this comes to a point. The elder who handed me the 20 mark note was David A. Bednar, a young elder serving in the then the South German mission who sits here on the stand now as the president of BYU-Idaho.
So why was it that this young elder from San Leandro, California, handed me the 20 mark note? If you understand that and understand what life is about, you will understand really all you need to know about life as members of the church. You'll understand how our lives are really not our own. They are governed if and if we will, and if lives if we will, and if we live as we should live, then we will be taken care of. Now, I don't know if he knew the consequences of what he was doing. That 20-mark note was worth $6, and $6 to an elder is quite a bit. Perhaps he hoped to get it back from the mission president, but at any rate, it happened. Now, what a great story told by Elder Packer of Elder Bednar, but what does Elder Bednar use that story to teach? He uses that story to teach us, once again, that when we have these impressions to do something good or to act a certain way, Elder Bednar said, trust that they come from our Heavenly Father and act on those. Well, while serving on his mission in Germany, Elder Bednar said that we had a bit of a tradition for a time. I think I ended every letter that I wrote home from the mission field with this. Dad, I love you. When are you going to be baptized? It wasn't until 1979. I remember Elder Bednar is on his mission in the early 70s. It was 79 while studying for his doctorate at Purdue that he received a phone call for which he had long prayed. It was his dad in California saying, what are you going to do? What are you doing this Saturday? I need you to come home and baptize me. We always talk about fathers blessing their children and performing the ordinances. And those are wonderful experiences, but I've had the experience of providing those ordinances for my dad, is what Elder Bednar said. Now, let's go back to BYU. Elder Bednar uh, is a student there. He's a returned missionary. He's home. And in his ward, on a particular Monday evening, it's family home evening. And their family home evenings groups get together. Of course, Elder Bednar is going to be the quarterback and Susan Robinson was on the team, and uh, she decides to go out for a long pass. Elder Bednar airs it out. She catches it perfectly. He was impressed by her catch and didn't know that that pass reception was the only pass that she would ever remember catching. In fact, in an interview I heard once with Sherry Dew with the Bednars, Susan said, yeah, I, in fact, I haven't caught a ball since. It was almost un- so uncharacteristic that she caught that deep pass by Elder Bednar, but it sure impressed him, and they began dating not long after that. They were married in the Salt Lake Temple on March the 20th, 1975. And he said, Sister Bednar and I knew each other for 19 months. We dated for 15 months before we were married. I do not recall ever receiving a single overwhelming spiritual confirmation that she was the one, in quotes. But I do recall that as we dated and as we talked, we became better acquainted. And as we observed and learned about each other in a variety of circumstances, I received many small, simple, and quiet reassurances that she was indeed a remarkable spiritual woman. And all of those simple answers over a period of time led to and produced an appropriate spiritual reassurance that indeed we were to be married. That reassurance did not come at once, though. It was spiritually subtle and gradually distilled upon our minds as the dews from heaven, from heaven he said. So in 1975, they're married. In 1976, Elder Bednar graduates from BYU with a bachelor's degree. And then in 1977, with a master's degree, both from BYU. And then they go to Purdue. And Elder Bednar receives a a doctorate degree from Purdue in 1980, and then joins the business faculty at the University of Arkansas. 
Now, here's what I can remember, how I can tie myself into this story just a little bit, but I majored in BYU in human resource development, and I became aware that I think every one of our professors in that, in that school uh, all had their degrees from Purdue. I mean, Purdue was the business school for human resources at the time, for organizational behavior. And uh, anyway, so that's where Elder Bednar went. Uh, for, but, but what may, many may not know is he, w- he was at Arkansas from 80 to 84, and then he takes a job at Texas Tech. And they're at Texas Tech in Lubbock from 84 to 86. And then in 86, they go back They go back to Arkansas. Now, I love the fact that Elder Bednar has three sons that are outstanding men, each one of them. Eric, one of the sons, describes his dad this way. He has always gone to the real sources, the words of the prophets and the scriptures. He is bold, but he listens. He will ask inspired questions and then listens to your answer. And then he'll ask another inspired question. Once he was giving me something similar to a Temple Recommend interview when I was about 14. He asked me if I sustained President Ezra Taft Benson. Now at the time, obviously, President Benson was the prophet. And I said that I did. And then my dad paused and said, what have you read lately of what President Benson has said? The lessons of those inspired questions and others like them are still teaching Eric and his brothers. By the way, I'm quoting from Elder Bednar, the article on Elder Bednar's life after he was called to be an apostle uh, that was printed in the ensign. His son Michael said this. He said, it seems that faith has driven out fear in my dad. He's always optimistic, and no matter what goes wrong, he always says things will work out. When it was hard for me during my mission, he told me to work hard and success would come. And he told me what the success that would come, when that success did come, to remember that God gave it to me and that I didn't earn it. Jeff, Elder Bednar's youngest son, says, Since I was little, Dad taught me to set goals and to exercise faith. Jeff said, I want people to know that he's an ordinary man who can do extraordinary things because of the strength of the Lord. He is a living witness of the enabling power of the atonement. One of my favorite talks that Elder Bednar ever gave was entitled More Diligent and Concerned at Home, a talk that he gave at the October 2009 General Conference, just a few years after he'd been called as an apostle. He said this, As our sons were growing up, our family did what you have done and what you now do. We had regular family prayer, scripture study, and family home evening. Now I'm sure what I'm about to describe has never occurred in your home, but it did in ours. Sometimes Sister Bedner and I wondered if our efforts to do these spiritually essential things were worthwhile. Now and then, verses of Scripture were read amid outbursts of such things as, He's touching me. Make him stop looking at me. Mom, he's breathing my air. Sincere prayers occasionally were interrupted with giggling and poking. And with active, rambunctious boys, family home evening lessons did not always produce high levels of edification. At times, Sister Bedna and I were exasperated because the righteous habits we worked on so hard to foster didn't seem to yield immediately the spiritual results we wanted and expected. And then I love this part of the talk because we're not playing it, but Elder Bednar gets a little emotional when he says this. It means so much to him. But he says, Today, if you would ask our adult sons what they remember about family prayer, scripture study, and family home evening, I believe I know how they would answer. 
They likely would not identify a particular prayer or a specific instance of scripture study or an especially meaningful family home evening lesson as the defining moment in their spiritual development. What they would say, they remember, is that a family, as a family, we were consistent, he said. Oh, I love that. Elder Bednar was a very involved father with those three sons. In fact, he carries on the tradition that his father left with him hands-on fathering. Sister Bednar laughed once when she pointed out that their home in Arkansas never really had any trees in the backyard. She said it was always a football or baseball field for not only their own children, but also for the neighborhood children who lined up for football passes from Mr. Bednar. There are some things that are nice. There are a few things that are absolutely necessary. Elder Bednar said of a career of career accomplishments being lower in priority to family. Family family comes first. And Elder Bednar made sure that his family came first. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Well, if you ask the Bednars, I think they would say that most of the professional life of their dad was spent at the University of Arkansas. He was there an assistant professor and also at Texas Tech and then a professor. He taught courses in communication, organizational behavior, team management. While there, he received twice the Outstanding Teacher Award in the College of Business Administration, was recognized as an outstanding teacher at the University of Arkansas, and won the 1994 Northern Foundation Award for Outstanding Teaching. But aside from that awesome academic career, Elder Bednar also had the chance to thrive in the church in Arkansas, where he was really needed. At the age of 30, he was called as a mem- to be a member of the stake presidency. Then, in 1987, he was called to be the bishop of the Fayetteville, Arkansas ward. He was 35 years old. And then, from 1987 to 91, or in other words, from the ages of 35 to 39, Elder Bednar was the president of the Fort Smith, Arkansas stake. That stake divided... In 1991, and then from 91 to 95, Elder Bednar became the president of the Rogers Arkansas Stake. And that was from the ages of 39 to 43. And then he's called to be a regional representative at the age of 43, in about 1995. From 1997 to 2004, while he's at at, uh, BYU-Idaho slash Ricks College, he's in Area Authority 70, the ages of 45 to 52, and then at the age of 52, in 2004, he was called to be an apostle. Now, let me share a little personal experience here. But first of all, uh, in 1995, my wife Janie and I lived in Mesa, Arizona. We had a state conference. And because of our southwest area that we lived in, Elder Bednar, at the age of 43, was our presiding authority at that state conference. And first of all, he looked super young. I think a lot of us were like, who's this young guy? We had had so many older general authorities come in. He was very young. And what I remember is is he was in the scriptures. And I still remember him saying once in one of the meetings, I'm here to teach the youth. And it was like, open your scriptures, here we go. And I remember thinking along with probably a lot of other people, okay, I don't know who this guy is, but this guy's going somewhere. And so I wasn't surprised to, to hear a few years after that. That was in 95. In 97, he was, he was appointed to be the president of Rick's College at the time and then BYU-Idaho. Another 
experience. Frisco, Texas, Friday Night Lights, October of 2004. I'm in the stands with uh, several other families. There were in, in our Texas stake there, there were five or six of us families who all of our sons played on the high school football team. We always sat together and talked, and it was halftime. And we all gathered together. And what we would do as dads is we'd, the wives, our, our wives would stay up in the stands and talk at halftime. And we'd all go down and maybe get a drink and talk a little bit more. And it was usually about the game. Okay, what's going on? What's going wrong? How are we going to fix this? Of course, we had no authority to fix anything. But I remember one of my good friends uh, said to me, all right, smarty pants. Now, I was the institute director at the time, so for some reason, everyone thought I, I would know the answer to questions like this. But he said, Who's gonna be, who, who will be the two new apostles tomorrow at General Conference? I said, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to take a shot. David A. Bednar will be one of the apostles. And a couple of them said, who's David A. Bednar? And I said, he's the president of BYU-Idaho right now, but he is incredible. And uh, then I guessed someone else, and I don't remember who I guessed. I was wrong on that one. I didn't, I didn't even know who President Udorf was at the time, and I missed that one. But, but I just had this great feeling about Elder Bednar. I'd also taught at the University of or at the Utah State Institute of Religion while I was doing my doctorate degree, and during those years, Elder Bednar was the president of BYU Idaho. He came and spoke to our faculty, and once again, I was like, "Okay, this this is an unusual person. He's going somewhere." I just had those had those feelings. I want to talk about Elder Bednar as a stake president just for a few minutes. One of his counselors. Uh, Brother Jerry Abram told a story that I'd like to share with you. He said that we traveled an average of 2,000 miles a month together. So I got to know Elder Bednar very well. He called my wife to be the Stake Relief Society president. He set my daughter apart when she departed for, to England for her mission. He spoke at her twin sister's funeral with such power and compassion. Our daughter was 17 years old when she and two of her girlfriends died in a tragic automobile accident. The funeral was tender, but Elder Bednar helped make it bearable. He stood behind our family during our darkest hour. And after the funeral, I wrote in my journal that he was the most spiritual and compassionate man I had ever met. Now here's another story that may illustrate uh, some of that compassion and some of, that, uh, some of his originality, if you want to say it that way. I love leaders who can think outside of the box and can, who can operate outside the box. And that's why Elder Bednar has my heart as a stake president myself. I just love hearing his stake president stories, and they inspire me to do things. Here's what he said, and I'll quote, Many years ago, while serving as a stake president, I was scheduled to preside and participate in a stake priesthood leadership meeting. The gathering was to be held in our stake center, located approximately 65 miles from our home. The drive to the stake center typically required 70 to 85 minutes, depending on weather and road conditions. The leadership session was to begin at 4.30 p.m. Sitting on the stand for a few minutes before the starting time, I turned to one of my counselors and whispered, If I need to leave early today, can you cover for me? He asked if something was wrong or if I was getting sick. I replied that everything was fine. I simply thought it might be necessary for me to leave the meeting. He responded with a quizzical look on his face. Sure, we can handle it if you need to take off. I motioned to the stake executive secretary and asked him to invite a brother 
and the congregation who was serving as an elders quorum president to meet me in my office immediately. I left the stand and walked to the stake president's office and waited for the brother to arrive, whom I had invited. Now remember, just think about this for a minute. This is me talking now, but Elder Bednar, the meeting's about to start, the chapel is full, and then he just walks off the stand and goes into his office. When the man entered the office, Elder Bednar said he had a grave concern looked on his face, but he clearly thought something was wrong. And I said to this good man, President, just relax. I think, I think you and I need to spend some time reviewing your responsibility as an elders quorum president. And I propose that we do so right now while we ride together in my car to watch our sons play basketball against each other at 7 o'clock p.m. The man's facial expression changed from one of concern to completely amazed bewilderment. He could not imagine that his stake president was inviting him to miss a priesthood leadership meeting to watch a basketball game. The son of the elders quorum president was playing on a team competing against my son's team in the championship game of a junior high school basketball tournament. Our drive to the site of the game would require almost two hours. We exited the building and quickly were on our way. During our ride together, we had a remarkable conversation about families, work, church service, his calling as an elders quorum president, and about junior high school basketball. Neither the president nor I will forget the looks of the faces of our wives and sons as we entered the gymnasium just a few minutes before tip-off. We shared a fun, memorable evening with our family supporting our sons. Approximately six months later, I received an early morning phone call from this same elders quorum president. He reported that he was at the hospital. His son, the boy who had played against my son in the basketball tournament, had been seriously injured in an accident. The president asked if I would come to the hospital. I responded that I would as quickly as possible. When I walked into the emergency room, this brother greeted me with a strong embrace and the, tra and the tragic news. His son had died just a few minutes earlier. I was stunned to think that such an energetic and beloved young man suddenly was gone. I hugged that bereaved father tightly. As I expressed my condolences and love, I spent precious time with my friend, both in silence and attempting to provide comfort. When it seemed appropriate, I asked what happened. The young man had been injured in a freak accident while completing routine chores. After recounting the events that caused his son's injury and led to his subsequent passing, this dear man looked at me and said, I'm so glad we left that priesthood meeting a few months ago so we could watch our boys play in that championship game. I will always treasure the joyful memory of that night. That may have been the only chance I would have ever had to see my son play in a game like that. Was it merely a coincidence that I somehow had felt a most unusual need to leave a church meeting and invite an elders quorum president to join me? Was it a random event that this brother and I could watch our sons compete in a basketball tournament? Or was the episode divinely orchestrated by a loving Lord who knows all things, the end from the beginning, and wanted a father and son to have a special experience together? I believe that in the work of the Lord, Elder Bednar said, there is no such thing as a coincidence. And on this occasion, I was blessed to be an instrument through whom a tender mercy was delivered to this man and his son. Because the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. What an incredible stake president. What a wonderful man, priesthood leader, disciple who follows the spirit and who ends up blessing the lives of this family. Wow. Now everyone has heroes in their life and I'm going to make an assumption here. 
I wish I could interview Elder Bednar because I think he may speak to this, but I believe that one of Elder Bednar's heroes became Harold B. Lee. Now, let me tell you about Harold B. Lee. Harold B. Lee would have been the prophet for a short time when Elder Bednar was a young student at BYU. But even before that, when the young men would gather in the mission home, as it was called in that day, Elder Harold B. Lee would walk in in a white suit with white scriptures, and the missionaries could ask him any question that they wanted to, and he would answer every question from the scriptures. Now, I'm going to read to you this because I, don't, I, I want it to be exact, but he said that uh, in this training before his mission, they were actually in the solemn assembly room in the Salt Lake Temple. President Harold B. Lee was there to answer questions from about 300 missionaries. He stood there in his white suit, holding his white scriptures. He answered every question from the scriptures, or he would simply say, I don't know. And then as a young missionary, Elder Bednar said, I sat there and thought that I would never be able to know the scriptures the way he did. But my objective became to use the scriptures in my teaching the way I saw President Harold B. Lee do it. That desire is the genesis of all my scripture study, he said. Now we know that there's that Elder Bednar loves the scriptures and he loves to teach from them. In fact, I would say that from President Harold B. Lee, two things came out of that experience. One, questions. If you've ever been with Elder Bednar in any kind of meeting, he loves questions and he will encourage the congregation to ask him questions. I was just in a meeting with him recently in a small, small group. And Elder Bednar said to us, after some small talk, what questions do you have? We were able to, able to ask him some great questions, I thought. Well, I, I thought that only because he said that's a great question. So anyway, but the evidence of his scripture use is incredible. I, in my mind, I have this visual of Elder Bednar beginning every devotional at BYU-Idaho, holding his scriptures up in the air. And then the students in unison would hold their scriptures up in the air and that was evidence that, okay, we are ready now. We are ready to be taught from the scriptures. Now I'm going to read this. My dad was a tool and die maker, Elder Bednar said, and he would never be caught without his tools. It seemed to me that for members of the Church of Jesus Christ, our tools are the scriptures. We would always have them in our meetings. When I became the stake president, we began to hold them up to remind us how, how they can, if we use them, hold up our faith. And then another story, years after Elder Bednar left Arkansas, a man walked into a priesthood interview in a rural stake in Idaho. He was carrying a well-worn set of scriptures. He noticed that the general authority conducting the interview seemed curious about the scriptures he was holding so carefully. He smiled, held the scriptures up, and said, When I was a young soldier in the army in Arkansas, I was in President Bednar's stake. I feel better when I have my scriptures with me. Yep, the impression that Elder Bednar made with the scriptures on those that he has responsibility for has been incredible. Here's another one. When he was the bishop of the Fayetteville, Arkansas ward, this happened. He said, I went into primary one Sunday, and they had invited me to come in and teach, and so he said, I decided to wear red suspenders. I thought that, that, that I would somehow use them as an object lesson, and so I got into the primary room, took off my coat, and said, now, boys and girls, the bishop has these red suspenders on. How are the scriptures like my red suspenders? And one little girl, or sorry, one little boy raised his hand and said, the scriptures hold up our faith in Jesus. 
the same the same way the suspenders hold up your pants and i said that's exactly right and from that point on the little boys in the ward started wearing red suspenders and the little girls had red bows in their hair now guys what a great what a great bishop what a great bishop and by the way the biography that i'm i keep referring to was written by henry b iring titled elder david a bednar going forward in the strength of the lord it was the ensign march 2005 where many of these stories and experiences are coming from i have access to um, a training that elder bednar did years ago with church employees that really impressed me he shared the experience well he, he taught the principle and i think he's big on this that we are here to act and not be acted upon and he shared the principle of how a general authority, a member of the Quorum of the Seventy, was coming through that Arkansas area at one given time and called Elder Bednar and said, hey, I'm going to be here on this day and would love to have a fireside or some kind of meeting with your stake. In fact, it may have even been like a stake leadership meeting of some kind, like on a Wednesday night. And Elder Bednar could have easily said, okay, that's, that's great, let's do it. But he knew that that wasn't right. And so Elder Bednar said, that's probably not going to work. And he said the general authority was taken back a little bit and asked why. And Elder Bednar said, well, our stake almost consists of, you know, half the state of Arkansas. People would have to drive hundreds of miles on a Wednesday night to come to that. They would have to rent hotels. They'd have to be driving at night. They'd have to come after work. A lot of them don't have money to travel like that and to rent hotels, but they would do it. And Elder Bednar said, I don't think it's a good idea. In fact, I think it would be, if you want us to gather some of our leaders, the high council, bishops, or whatever, but to bring in the whole stake, this probably would not be a good idea. And Elder Bednar said that this man at first was not pleased to hear that, but then after thinking about it for a minute, was able to say, you know, I can see the wisdom in that. Okay, let's do something different, kind of a plan B. And Elder Bednar said, was I wrong to say that as a stake president to a member of the Quorum of the Seventy? No. I wanted to put the information out there. And if this man would have said, well, I don't care. We're going to have the whole stake meet anyway. Elder Bednar said we would have done that. But, but that's not what happened. Elder Bednar was give, able to give him the information because we're here to act. And then they were able to make a great decision. Let's now talk about the BYU-Idaho years and how that uh, all came to be. Elder Bednar shared this story. He said, I received a phone call from Elder Henry B. Irene. During the conversation, he asked me this question. He said, Brother Bednar, we're in the process of identifying a new president for Rick's College. Would you be interested in being considered? Elder Bednar said that I would be delighted to learn about the position and be considered. And then President Irene said, good, let's get right to business. You and your wife need to be in Salt Lake City tomorrow. I called my wife and said, Susan, I just got a call from Elder Irene. We have to be in Salt Lake City tomorrow. She said, David, for 23 years you've been teasing me. This is the biggest hoax you've ever tried to pull, and I'm not buying it. It took me 15 minutes to convince Susan that I was not kidding and that we really had to make arrangements to get to Salt Lake City. And then that evening at dinner, I said to our youngest son, Jeffrey, I received a call from Elder Irene today. Mom and I will be traveling to Salt Lake City to be interviewed about the possibility of moving to Rexburg, Idaho to become the president of Rick's College. He took about five seconds, looked at me, and said, Dad, there have to be a lot of men in the church better qualified for that job than you. Oh, I love that <laughs> that open, honest dialogue there. Well, Elder Bednar said this. 
at the time in 1997 that Ricks College was the largest private junior college in the United States, 8,500 students. In his first meeting with the faculty and staff, he said, look, I've never been the president of a college before. I don't know how to do this, but I do know some things about teaching, and I hope that foundation will provide at least a beginning. Well, what a beginning it was. Remember, outside the box, right? There are some things that Elder Bednar did as a college president that is so impressive to me. Uh, First, as he began uh, his tenure as president, he made sure that every semester he taught a class. And what class did he teach? He taught teachings of the living prophets. Another thing that the Bednars did is that they invited the students to come to a family home evening. It was Elder Bednar's wish, it was Sister Bednar's wish, that they could visit with every student on the campus and have a meaningful relationship with them. And so the idea sprang forth that why don't we have them in our home? Why don't we invite them to a special family home evening? And I'm not sure how they did that rotation. Obviously, they didn't have every student come at once. They had about 200 come on a given Monday night. And in the years that they were in Rexburg, close to 35,000 students were blessed with family home evening in the Bednar home. Now, another, uh, another excerpt from this training piece that I have that I want to share with you. Elder Bednar told the experience of being contacted by President Hinckley and being told over the phone that Rick's College was now going to become BYU-Idaho. And Elder Bednar said, I learned about that just about as, as soon as everyone else did. And then Elder Bednar asked this question of President Hinckley, okay, President, well, what would you like me to do? What do I, what do I even do? And President Hinckley just said, make it happen. That was really uh, one of the only instructions, right? It, it really fell on Elder Bednar to, to go and make that happen. So one of the things that Elder Bednar did is he opened his door as the college president and said, I want to hear from everyone. I want everyone to participate in making comments and sharing their ideas of how we're going to do this. And for Elder Bednar, that meant, of course, I want to hear from department chairs. Of course, I want to hear from faculty. But I want to hear from staff. I want to hear from secretaries and receptionists. I want to hear from the long crew. I want to hear from the maintenance crew. I want to hear for everyone. And once again, that that type of leadership has inspired me. As I sit in meetings, as I conduct meetings, especially if it's a meeting with a group of 12 or even 20 or 30, I want to hear from everyone. And I've learned that lesson from Elder Bednar and from his leadership. Now, a few years ago, I had the chance to visit with Jeff Bednar, who's become a good friend of mine. He lives in our stake. And, uh, I just said, hey, Jeff, what are some things you would want people to know about your dad that they probably don't? And very first thing he said, my dad's very disciplined. He wakes up every morning between 4 and 4.30, sometimes between 3 and 3.30, and he exercises. He says right now he's doing an incline treadmill, but at BYU-Idaho, he would run the stadium steps every morning, no matter how cold it was. He said, in fact, my mom and I were always nervous because it would be, you know, below zero, uh, at in Rexburg, Idaho, stadium covered in ice and snow, and there would be Elder Bednar at 4:30 in the morning, you know, rubbing up, r- running up and down those steps. But his dad is very a very disciplined person. He also he said my dad loves to read and study. He's one of the most well well read people I know, 
It's not on only gospel topics, everything from business to politics, education. Elder Bednar, like all the apostles, are very well read on all the issues, right? And then he said this, my dad has always made his family his highest priority. And then Jeff explained to me that in his dad's 17-year career at the University of Arkansas, which was complete with awards, with fellowships, research grants, he says, my dad was approached many times by the university to serve in what I would call high-profile administrative positions. And every time, Elder Bednar would turn those, turn those uh, offers down. And once Jeff said, Dad, why do you do that? I mean, why do you keep turning these positions down that would pay more money? And Elder Bednar explained to Jeff that if I accepted those positions, I wouldn't be able to coach your teams. I wouldn't be able to spend the time with you that we have together. Something Elder Bednar just wasn't willing to do. And so, yes, he coached his sons in every sport, in football and basketball and baseball. Uh, he was not disposed to give up that opportunity. And then Jeff said this. He said, I think as, uh, you know, as the three sons of my dad, we really internalized that and thought a lot about it. And he said, now today, every one of us are college professors. And he said, I think a big part of that is that we saw our dad and the flexibility of schedule and how much time he had to spend with his family is the time that we want to be able to spend with our families, to spend with our families and to, and to serve in the kingdom. And that's what all those sons do. Jeff also related that what many people don't know about his dad is that he lives the principles that he teaches. He believes that all of us should be accountable and responsible for our, for our own learning. As a university professor, he said my dad had a reputation for being somewhat tough, especially when it came to testing. He believed that a monkey could make a, a 25 or a 30 percent at least on a multiple choice test. And he said, and as a professor, if you said, hey, sorry, my assignment's late or my printer was out of ink or I forgot or lost my homework or the dog ate it, that Professor Bednar would say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry too. Well, you just you just did not pass that assignment and uh, hopefully you'll do better on the next one. You know, it was just that kind of that kind of teaching. This approach also carried over into priesthood leadership and to parenting. Uh, Elder Bednar wanted members of his stake his ch and his children to be responsible, self-reliant, and independent, and to act and not be acted upon. When his sons had a question, Elder Bednar would open the scriptures with them to discover the principles that would help them solve their problem. One time, Jeff told the story of uh, he was the priest quorum first assistant. And it was a Wednesday mutual night, and the activity had fallen through, and Jeff needed an activity. And he said, Elder Bednar, uh, instead of giving him some great ideas of what a great activity would be that night, he said, Jeff, let's turn to Jacob chapter 1 and learn some leadership principles, and then you'll be inspired, and you'll know what to do. And uh, Jeff said, Dad, I don't need scripture stories. I just need an idea. But Elder Bednar was, was no, we're going to teach this true principle here, and then you'll figure it out. You'll get the, the inspiration. Another story that Jeff shared with me on a more personal level is one that I share with you that I just think, wow, what a great dad. But Elder Bednar would take his sons with him when he could, when he traveled as a stake president. And often that meant several hours in the car together. And, and uh, Elder Bednar would say to Jeff, okay, ask me any question. Just ask any questions you want. And Jeff would ask those questions. But Jeff said, you know what? There were a couple times where I didn't want to ask questions. I just wanted to look out the window. But then Jeff got really emotional and tender on this and said, you know, 
It's really interesting, though. Years later, I was a missionary in the mission field, and investigators, those investigating the church, as we call them friends now, were asking me these questions. And I realized that almost every question that they were asking me, my dad and I had covered on those long trips, on those long drives. I knew the answers to those questions. I said, hey, uh, what are some of your dad's favorite things? He said, my dad loves baggy basketball shorts from colleges uh, that all of us have attended. Uh, He loves his grandchildren along with Sister Bednar. In fact, many of their grandchildren are girls. And Elder Bednar loves that side now of him that's come out to be a grandfather to all these wonderful uh, young, young girls. He has ice cream parties with his grandkids. He likes to relax. Just like anyone, likes to watch the news or sports at night before he goes to bed. Likes to p- play Scrabble with his wife, Susan. And I said, does your dad laugh? He goes, oh yeah, my dad can laugh with the, with the best of them. I want to conclude with a story today that has taught me so many great things in my church leadership and responsibility that, uh, that I now share with you. This message comes from Elder Bednar's talk called The Character of Christ that was given at BYU-Idaho on January 25th, 2003. And I would encourage you just to Google it. At one time, it was an obscure talk, and I felt really privileged that I had access to it. Now it's everywhere. In fact, I think they even use it as training at the missionary, at the missionary training center. During a training meeting that Elder Bednar was in, Elder Neil A. Maxwell made this statement that there would have been no atonement except for the character of Christ. And that phrase alone sent Elder Bednar on a journey to discover for himself what that idea meant. And he really, really developed that. And Elder Bednar said that perhaps the greatest indicator of character is the capacity to recognize and appropriately respond to other people who are experiencing the very challenge or adversity that most immediately and forcefully presses upon us. Character is revealed, for example, in the power to discern the suffering of other people when we ourselves are suffering, and in the ability to detect the hunger of others when we are hungry, and the power to reach out and extend compassion for the spiritual agony of others when we are in the midst of our own spiritual distress. Thus, character is demonstrated by looking and reaching outward when the natural and instinctive response is to be self-absorbed and to turn inward. If such a capacity is indeed the ultimate criterion of moral character, then the Savior of the world is the perfect example of such a consistent and charitable character. In that talk, Elder Bednar gave many, many examples of character in the Savior's life. For one, he tells a story in Matthew chapter 4 of Jesus going through those three great temptations. And then in Matthew chapter 4 verse 11, in that verse, it tells us that angels came and ministered to Christ. But Elder Bednar points us to the Joseph Smith translation of that verse that it says, no, actually angels did come, but Christ sent those angels to minister to John who was in prison. What's the point? After Christ goes through one of the most spiritually draining and traumatic experiences of his life, being tempted by Satan himself, he sends angels to minister to John, not himself. Another example would be just as simple as Christ walking out of the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter chopping off the ear of Malchus, the Roman soldier, and then Christ healing 
that ear of Malchus on the spot. I mean, here's Jesus being escorted by Roman soldiers to be executed, and he's stopping and healing people along the way. In a more modern rendition of that, it reminds me of my own mission president who went into the hospital with his wife for some testing and, it, and was told that he had stomach cancer and that there's no way he would live much more than a few more months. And then uh, my mission president, hearing that news, walked out of the hospital and along the way knocking on doors and asking if anyone needed priesthood blessings. I just can't even imagine that, right? You've just received the worst news of your life. You have a couple months to live. There's nothing they can do, and I'm going to go give people blessings. This idea of reaching outward when the natural instinct would be to turn inward. So then Elder Bednar, and I would say a little uncharacteristic of Elder Bednar, because I would, I would say that Elder Bednar is not a storyteller, per se, although the stories he does tell are incredible. He's more right in, right in the principles and doctrines, but... He shares this story that I'll share with you, and we'll close with it today, but it's very powerful for those who haven't heard it. He said, early one summer morning, I was showering. My wife called me in the middle of my shower and indicated that I was needed immediately on the phone. This was before the day of cell or cordless phones. I quickly put on my robe and hurried to the phone. I next heard the voice of a dear sister and friend informing me of a tragic automobile accident that had just occurred in a remote area involving three young teenage young women from our stake. Our friend indicated one of the young women had already been pronounced dead at the scene of the accident and that the two other young women were badly injured and, and, and presently were being transported to the regional medical center in Fayetteville. She further reported that the identity of the deceased young woman was not yet known. There was urgency in her voice, but there was no panic or excessive alarm. Then she then asked if I could go to the hospital, meet the ambulance when it arrived, and assist in identifying the young women. I answered that I would leave immediately. During the course of our telephone conversation, as I listened to both the information being conveyed and the voice of our friend, I gradually became aware of two important things. First, this friend's daughter was one of the young women involved in the accident. Our friend lived approximately 35 miles from the hospital and therefore needed the assistance of someone who lived closer to the city. Second, I detected that the mother simultaneously was using two telephone handsets with one in each hand pressed against each of her ears. I became aware that as she was talking with me, she was also talking with a nurse at a small rural hospital who had initially attended to the, to the three accident victims. Our friend was receiving updated information about the condition of the young woman in the very moment she was informing me about the accident and had requested and was requesting my help. I then heard one of the most remarkable things I have ever heard in my life. I faintly heard the nurse telling this faithful mother and friend that the young woman pronounced dead at the scene of the accident had been positively identified as her daughter. I could not believe what I was hearing. I was listening to this good woman in the very moment that she learned of the death of her precious daughter. Without hesitation and with calm and most a most deliberate voice, our friend next said, President Bednar, we must get in contact with the two other mothers. We must let them know as much as we can about the condition of their daughters and that they will soon be in the hospital in Fayetteville. There was no self-pity. There was no self-absorption. There was no turning inward. 
The Christ-like character of this devoted woman was manifest in her immediate and almost instinctive turning outward to attend to the needs of other suffering mothers. It was a moment and lesson I have never forgotten, and in a moment of ultimate grief, this dear friend reached outward when I likely would have turned inward. I think most of us, I'm saying this now, would turn inward. Elder Bednar said, I then drove to the hospital with a concern in my heart for the well-being of the other two beautiful young women who had been involved in the accident. Little did I realize that the lessons I would learn about Christ-like character, lessons taught by seemingly ordinary disciples, were just beginning. I arrived at the hospital and proceeded to the emergency room. After properly establishing who I was and my relationship to the victims, I was invited into two different treatment areas to identify the injured young woman. It was obvious that their respective wounds were serious and life-threatening, and the lovely countenances and physical features of these young women had been badly marred. Within a relatively short period of time, the two remaining young women died. All three of these virtuous, lovely, engaging young women who seemed to have so much of life in front of them suddenly had gone to their home, to the home of their eternal father. My attention and the attention of the respective families now shifted to funeral arrangements and logistics. A day or so later, in the midst of a program of program planning and detail arranging for the three funerals, I received a phone call from the Relief Society president of my home ward. Her daughter had been one of the victims in the accident, and she and I had talked several times about her desires for the funeral program. This faithful woman was a single mother rearing her only child, her teenage daughter. I was especially close to this woman and her daughter, having served both as their bishop and stake president. After reviewing and finalizing several details for the funeral of her daughter, this good sister said to me, President, I am sure it was difficult for you to see my daughter in the emergency room the other day. She was severely injured and disfigured. As you know, we will have a closed casket at the funeral. I have just returned from the funeral home, and they have helped my daughter to look so lovely again. I was wondering, why don't we arrange a time when we can meet at the mortuary, and you can have one last look at her before she is buried? Then your final memories of my daughter will not be the images you saw in the emergency room the other day. I listened and marveled at the compassion and thoughtfulness this sister had for me. Her only daughter had just been tragically killed, but she was concerned about the potentially troublesome memories I might have given my experience in the emergency room. In this good woman, I detected no self-pity, no turning inward, Sorrow, certainly. Sadness, absolutely. Nevertheless, she reached outward when many or perhaps most of us would have turned inward with sorrow and grief. Let me describe one final episode related to these three tragic deaths. On the day of her daughter's funeral, this Relief Society president from my home ward received a phone call from an irritated sister in our ward. The complaining sister had a cold and did not feel well, and she basically chewed out the Relief Society president for not being thoughtful or compassionate enough to arrange for meals to be delivered to her home. Just hours before the funeral of her only child, this remarkable Relief Society president prepared and delivered a meal to the murmuring sister. I don't even know if I have words for that story, but wow. We appropriately and rightly speak with reverence and awe of young men who sacrifice their lives to rescue stranded handcart pioneers and of other mighty men and women who repeatedly give all their all to establish the church in the early days of the Restoration. I speak with equal reverence, Elder Bednar said, and awe of these two women, women of faith and character and conversion, 
who taught me so much and instinctively reached outward when most of us would have turned inward. How I appreciate their quiet and powerful examples. Oh, I love that story that Elder Bednar has shared. It is so powerful and helps us to understand more about the Savior and his character. I am so grateful for Elder David A. Bednar. Even though I've only met him one time, he has had an incredible impact on my life as I have read his talks and messages, as I've listened to him speak, as I've heard him teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll just share one last lesson, and I know that I am going over time today, but I can't help it. Years ago as a bishop, I sat in a training meeting with other bishops and stake presidents, and Elder Bednar was one who presided at that meeting. I'm not one to ask questions in a large group. I know that may sound uh, unbelievable. Really, I'm pretty quiet on the back row, happy to sit and listen and take some notes. But on this particular day, I was bothered by something, and I just really wanted help for it. And and so I did ask a question, and my question was, is what do you do as a bishop when you're worried about the youth of your ward and it feels like parents are standing in the way of their youth's conversion? Or in other words, some of these parents, in my case, weren't even expecting their children to come to church, to participate in youth conferences or bishops' firesides, or even come to Mutual on Wednesday night. There was just no expectation at all. And I was quite discouraged by that. And Elder Bednar taught me a great principle, and I'll share it with you. He said, look, every time there's a problem in the church, we want to give a talk on it. If people are late to church, let's have a talk on punctuality. If people aren't doing their ministering, let's have a talk on ministering. And Elder Bednar said, I don't think talks do a lot of good. I think what we have to do is be in the homes of our people and minister one by one. And then Elder Bednar, really looking at me and pointing to me, said, I give you an assignment. It is to read these chapters in the book of Alma and then go and do and find a way to minister into the homes of those people. And his message made all the difference. He was exactly right. And I'm so grateful for his personal counsel to me as a, as a bishop. But once again, I fully sustain this man. I sustain his family. I know his children, at least one of them well. And, and his family, these are wonderful, outstanding people who are fully consecrated, who love the gospel of Jesus Christ, who love their Savior, who love the restoration, and who love to bless the lives of others and help those around them. I'm so grateful for this family, for their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for their leadership. I love Elder Bednar, and I share that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.